Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my special guest to you. His name is John Gleason, also known as Godless Engineer. How are you today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I've, you know, not been in quarantine, but I've, you know, been on telework, so been home, been at home a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, a but, lot of a lot of people out there can relate to that. Uh, maybe a, a little bit of cabin fever going on, or how are you feeling? No, I mean, I get out and I walk around and stuff uh, with my wife. So, uh, you, you know, not too bad a cabin fever, but I also kind of like being at home in the first place. So it kind of works out a little bit. Yeah, same here. I, I definitely enjoy uh, being at home. Uh, so uh, you and I became acquainted via YouTube and you made a response video to one of my videos and then I made a response video to that. Uh, I believe you made another one and you got another one in the works as well. So that's all perfectly well and fine, of course. Um, but that's kind of how we became acquainted for the uh, listener. Uh, and, and, of course, if you want to catch up on that exchange to the listener, you can either go back on my channel and uh, w uh, find the video I did. And, of course, I linked to uh, John's videos as well. Or I'm going to leave a link in the description to John's channel, which is called Godless Engineer, that you can follow that link and uh, go catch up on that if you're interested, of course. Uh, we'll probably touch base on some of the stuff we've uh, already talked about in, in the course of this interview. But anyway, that's kind of how we became acquainted with, uh, with each other. But I don't know you all that well, and I'm, uh, I'm sure there's plenty, of my, in, at least in my audience, who may or may not. So I thought it might be helpful uh, if you gave a brief introduction of yourself. Okay. Well, um, I'm Godless Engineer. Uh, I live in North Alabama, and uh, I became an atheist uh, when I was about 25, 24, 25, something like that. So, I mean, it's been about 15, maybe, no, 10, not 15, <clears throat> 10, 10, about 10 years or so. Um, uh, I, yeah. Because I'm 35, I'm I'm doing quick age math in my head. <laughs> yeah, sometimes um, we don't like to admit it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a bit, I, I've been an atheist about uh, 10 years or so, and uh, I that's that's pretty much me. Yeah. Uh, how'd you know, that, how'd you get I, started with the channel? Well, um, so I. You know, I, ha I have a page on Facebook, uh, and it got kind of popular, and so I felt like the next step is to you know start doing videos like i see yeah. all the other uh you know atheist oriented or uh in the in the in the vertical of you know religion on youtube i, I saw other people doing it and i was just like i mean i can do that yeah and so i started doing it and it's just kind of been a gradual process uh ever since um you know, I created a channel and I started putting out videos and uh, I started, you know, refining how I did my videos, the topics I covered and everything and really researching on the best way to build a brand and mm -hmm. uh, all that. And now I'm here. Yeah, I think you've done a really good job, by the way. Uh, 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 of course, we have disagreements on the material, obviously, so, but uh, the structure and like you said, the, the brand building and stuff, um, um, I kind of think like that as well. And so I kind of noticed those things when I was looking at your channel and I think you've done an excellent job and it obviously shows with the number of uh, followers and engagement that you get. So congrats on all that success that you've had, by the way. And uh, I, like I said, I think you're doing a good job in that area. Uh, tell me, uh, so you became a Christian. You, I mean, I'm sorry, you became an atheist, you said. Uh, I guess that means that you were once a Christian? Um, if so, tell me uh, how you became a Christian and kind of what your experience as a Christian was like. 
Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I was born into it basically. Uh, you know, when I, when I was born, um, I don't really consider myself any one particular religion, but you know, uh, I was soon, you know, put into church and, uh, we were Catholic at the time. So we went to uh, Catholic mass every Sunday. We, we did a lot of things with the Catholic church. Uh, I even went to private Catholic school until fourth grade. After fourth grade, I switched to public school and, uh, uh, a little bit after that, we left the Catholic Church and we went to uh, basically Protestant uh, denominations. Uh, re- see, I know my mom eventually ended up in a Lutheran church. Uh, I kind of bounced around some some Baptist churches, some non-denominational churches. Uh, you know, I, I I always as a kid was was really trying to be a good Christian. You know, a good Christian and go to church and pray and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, I just I really didn't feel a lot of, all that connected to it. And uh, I honestly just didn't even realize that not believing in God was uh, you know a possibility. And so when, when I was confronted by a friend uh, after a church softball game about, you know, believing in the Bible and how you had to 100 percent believe in the Bible from cover to cover, including like everything in Genesis being literal history and uh, all of that, I had to really take a hard look at what I actually believed in and what I actually accepted, like either about the Bible or about my beliefs in general. And basically it wasn't like a light switch kind of thing. Uh, at first it, it was, it was a process. Like I, I, I read, you know, a new material to me about, you know, the possibility of God not existing and, uh, you know, responses to arguments, uh, for, uh, for, for the existence of God. I started looking into all of that and I, I increasingly found myself siding with the, the side that was like, well, we're not sure if God exists or not. We don't know and we don't believe that one exists. So I found myself drawn to that particular position because I felt like it was a more tenable position uh, to have. And, uh, you know, throughout the course of me figuring out what I believed, I eventually came to the decision that I just simply didn't believe in a God anymore. And that was probably the biggest hurdle for me was accepting the fact that I didn't believe in a God. And being in the South, I mean, uh, I'm not exactly sure where you're located. Yeah, but North Texas. North, yeah, North Texas. Yeah, North Texas. Uh, being in North Alabama, I mean, we're pretty heavily religious in this area, and there's not a lot of people in this area that are atheist. Uh, so, I mean, it was that was the biggest hurdle for me, and you know, eventually it got to the point where uh, I, you know, was espousing my new. Uh, worldview, uh, talking about it like online and it really angered some family members. And that's where I started the, you know, godless engineer channel. Yeah. Uh, well, well page and channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and thanks for sharing that, by the way, that, that is, uh, uh, enlightening to hear. And I think it's uh, pretty, um, it's pretty common. It's a, it was a common experience for me actually. And so when I say it's a common experience, I don't mean to uh, belittle it or anything like that, but I, I just mean, I hear that a lot and have felt it myself, which is not, like you said, just not even being aware of the fact that there's people that don't believe in God. That, that when you said that, I was like, I've, I've definitely felt that and definitely hear that from mm-hmm. some people, uh, as well. Like you said, we're in pretty similar contexts, uh, in the South, the Bible belt, however you want to say it. Um, 
And so it's just interesting to hear your story because it kind of relates to mine, which was, I was like, wow, there's people that, that don't believe in God. What is that like? And um, I started reading Dawkins and I started reading uh, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and, and uh, um, things like that nature. And I, I, and I even came to, this all happened while I was in seminary. Um, and then I came to the point where I, one of my best friends, and I, and I really mean he's like my best friend is an atheist. And I went to him and said, you know what, I don't, I don't think I believe anymore. Um, and th- but then, like you were saying, one of those th- thoughts that entered my head was, it's going to be hard to do, you know, if I'm going to accept this because my old, my family is this way. I wasn't married at the time, but now my wife is a Christian and things like that. It would be a difficult decision to make. And I'm by no means going to pretend like those things were not a factor uh, for me. Um, um, but anyway, it's just interesting to hear your uh, story. Um, did you have anything else you want to say on that before we move on to the next question or? No, uh, other than you, I, I didn't really take the decision lightly. Uh, I don't. I don't think I really portrayed it as I took it lightly. But just uh, anybody out there that that could possibly be questioning their faith or anything like that that that's watching this, sure. uh, I would say that just carefully consider it. And for me personally, I don't care which side of the the question or or the situation that you come out on, whether or not you believe in God or, or not. Uh, just as long as you have, you know, carefully considered your position and have come to your position because that is what you are convinced of and not let somebody else try to tell you what to think. That's it's a it's a big thing for me is advocating for people to just consider it for themselves regardless of which uh, side you come out on yeah and uh, I appreciate the way you just approach that and I'll echo that uh, 100% you should definitely uh, uh, take it seriously or take seriously the idea that you might be wrong and uh, whichever side you're on and uh, weigh the evidence for yourself that was the biggest thing for me that initially almost led to me walking out of Christianity was I just been taking this all on either blind faith or what somebody else has said I haven't looked into this for myself and so I'll definitely echo what you just said for sure uh, so what um, you know you said it was a gradual process what and uh, that you had talked to one of your friends who was, I think you said who was uh, asking you questions about uh, taking the Bible literally and things like that what would you say was maybe like the first domino or something that started that whole uh, process of questioning things or uh, that process of doubt what was kind of the first thing that might have clicked if, if there was one well so my my friend that prompted that he was uh pretty big into his church and his faith and and all that he had once been uh i guess i guess the best way to put it is rebellious in his in his like uh high school uh time sure uh he, he was he was one of the guys that walked around with black uh fingernail polish on and like everybody made fun of him and everything and he kind of <laughs> wore it proudly and you know i was his uh, i mean i i wasn't like that but you know i was his friend don't I, lie I to always... me don't lie to me no i'm just kidding <laughs> I've I've never worn fingernail polish. Um, I, I'll admit I get mani pedis now, nice. but I do not get fingernail polish or toenail polish. Um, uh, but I, I'm I'm sure I'm just wearing thin on that. But, um, but but back then, like I always gravitated towards people that were kind of the outcasts. Sure. You know, I I never really fit in with the more popular crowd because of either. Um, either because of how smart I was in school or because of how I looked, uh, the fact that I was a little chubby. Um, in, in any case, it was, I was never part of like the in crowd or anything. So I always gravitated towards that, you know, group of people. And, 
you know, he he came around to religion. He found Jesus. He became saved again, and he you know, really got into his faith and I had been friends with him. And even though I wasn't as into faith as he was, I mean, he was still a really good friend. And when I started asking more questions about it, you know, when I started thinking more about my beliefs and, and, you know, believing in God and really trying to go to church, be a good Christian and all that, because I thought that's what I needed to do. Um, you know, I started talking to him about it and it just happened the, the one night when, you know, I was kind of having doubts or I was thinking about it or whatnot. He poses that to me. And, you know, after he said that, I'm like, well, you know, I can't take the Bible literally as it's written down, like Genesis uh, how it talks about the the universe being formed that's just not how it happened the the Noah's Ark thing that is really ridiculous to me I, I don't think that that actually happened which I mean I did at one point in time in my life I remember as a kid I um I was at my dad's house and uh, I was bored one day and I thought about how, whoa, we're all related because of Adam and Eve. So it's like we're all family and stuff like that. So, I mean, I remember as a kid, like thinking about that stuff, but not critically thinking about it. So when I started critically thinking about it, really, it was just the idea that you had to take a very fundamentalist and literal view of the Bible. I would say that that was kind of the first domino. And that kind of set me down a path of trying to figure out you know, where, where I landed, you know, in, in my beliefs and what I actually believe, like critically think about it and not just because that's what I think that it's supposed to, like, that's what I'm supposed to believe. I'm supposed to believe in God and all that. So, um, yeah, I just sort of started critically thinking about it and, um, that would be the first domino. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, um, you, you talk about, uh, can't take the Genesis story and things like that literally. I think that's something that most people who grew up in the same kind of contexts that we did. And of course, I, I you and I don't have a perfectly uh, uh, parallel context that we grew up in, obviously. But uh, just from what you're describing, it sounds very similar similar to my own. And and so that's all I'm saying. But um, where I grew up thinking or believing, because that's what I was taught, that all of this is uh literally true in the most you know literal historical uh scientific sense and things like that and whenever i first became interested in christian apologetics um that's that's kind of the area that i gravitated towards those more like ken ham um i'm told that kent hoven is is pretty similar i don't i didn't even know who that was until like a few weeks ago but uh, more like ken ham was kind of somebody that i really wanted to study or uh, listen to and kind of be like whenever i first learned about christian apologetics but i i, I don't feel that way any longer and uh, that's just because the like you said the farther you go into things it seems more difficult to reconcile and uh, th- this would be this will be an interesting uh, question for you uh, that i hadn't thought of previously but um, I became more gravitated towards uh, people who took a, a different view that perhaps the uh, Genesis written, um, you know, thousands and thousands of years before the uh, scientific uh, explosion or whatever ever even happened. Perhaps they weren't actually talking about science back then. It was uh, supposed to be understood differently. It, do you view that kind of a, uh, um, yeah, it is a compromising in some sense, but do you view that as something that's tenable, tenable, saying, you know, we shouldn't be looking for scientific stuff or literal historical stuff in these very old texts? Do you view Christians who take that view as, I, I, in a literal sense, obviously they're taking a compromi- compromised view, but do you view that as weak and why not just go all the way, or how do you view that? 
No, I mean, I think that it's uh, it's at least a more honest position. Um, and it, it, you know, you can, you can harmonize it with what we experience in reality. I mean, most Catholics now, they will, you know, not take a literal view of Genesis and they take more of a metaphorical view of it. And I think that, you know, that's the best way to interpret that. And, and to be quite honest, I might still be a Christian if I had really, uh, you know, been in the apologetics Sort of like if I if I had known the different ways that Christians, uh, you know, come about their beliefs about the Bible. If I had known all of the different options, I may not have even ventured down the path of that, that would have led me to being an atheist, because <clears throat> I think that taking the the Genesis accounts and all of that not literally and more metaphorically. And not taking what the Bible is teaching as uh, science or um, historical record, uh, I, I think that, that that is a very good position to have uh, and that Christians are perfectly, you know, uh, fine if they do, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, think about the Bible in that way. I think that. I think I, I don't look down on the, on anybody for holding any particular belief uh, except for creationism because of how um, how anti anti reality the, it really is. And so taking a metaphorical look at the Old Testament, I think that any Christian that that does that is holding the most tenable position as far as their faith goes. Yeah. It was really, uh, for me, um, and, and like you said, you said if you had had something like that, perhaps uh, you hadn't, you wouldn't have gone the route of atheism. Um, I did have something like that, and it did play a major role in, in not in, in leading me uh, to stay in Christianity. I was trying to figure out how to say that. And that was really John Walton's book uh, called the, he's, a, he's an Old Testament scholar called The Lost Story of Genesis, which really... Um, follows the same interpretive principles that a fundamentalist uh, like Kenham would would follow. Uh, that is taking the historical grammatical approach to scripture, which I think is the only way to approach any text, let alone scripture. Which just basically means you have to take this text in the context of its historical um, context as well as its grammatical or uh, linguistic context as well. And doing that, he comes to the conclusion that. They're obviously not teaching science, and we shouldn't be taking literal scientific <laughs> interpretations of the text from that. So I, that was kind of the the work that uh, did pop up in my study that kind of really helped me because I knew I couldn't take that position any longer. And so I was like, well, where am I going to go from here? And that was uh, – I think that that was the most viable option, and that's why I went down it. Um, is there a, a, a reason – so it's one thing to say I no longer believe – in the Bible, or that Jesus rose from the dead, or something like that. But what was kind of the we took, like I keep using the word domino metaphorically here. But what was kind of the the thing that convinced you that God doesn't exist? Uh, because obviously Christianity could be false, the Bible could be false, and and yet God could still exist. In fact, all the major world religions and the minor all religions could be false, and there could still be something like a deistic God or a theistic God, like the God of the philosophers, or something like that. What kept you from going down that route? Well, I mean, that kind of assumes I didn't go down that route. Oh, perhaps uh, you did. Yeah, sorry. 
Well, uh, because, I mean, I don't hold the position that God does not exist. I hold the position that I don't believe in a God, and I don't believe him to exist, which is very different because you're talking about beliefs. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of conversation and a lot of arguments uh, on to be had online about, like, what atheism is. Sure. And there's the philosophical definition where it it has atheism being a a hard atheist or a gnostic atheist where the the person claims that they know that god doesn't exist or that they believe no gods exist and uh, <clears throat> I, I just I, I don't take that particular position sure um i'm i classify myself as an agnostic atheist so I don't know if there is a God or if there isn't a God. Uh, there could very well be some kind of deistic God or some kind of definition of God that we really don't know about. If you take the current times, it kind of seems like maybe Cthulhu is the God of, of the world. Um, but if um, uh, but then you take the, the atheism part, and that's belief. So that, that was agnostic. And so the belief part is atheism. That would be uh, that I don't believe in a god because theism is a belief in a deity, and I lack that belief or I don't believe in a deity. And so what convinced me, I guess, that uh, I – like like it, what convinced me to not believe in – a deity is the lack of good supporting evidence to suggest that there actually is a deity that doesn't rule out that a deity could exist. There still could be a deity up there, but uh, if he, if there is one up there, then I really don't think that he has any kind of hand in reality. He, he or she, whatever they um, pronoun you want to use for him. Um, I don't think that they have any kind of hand in reality. I don't think that they're personal. I don't think that they um, really, really care about this one particular universe that they created, um, if that were the case. Uh, but I think that it's more likely that uh, a deity such as that doesn't exist uh, because we don't have any evidence uh, f to suggest that that's actually the case. Okay. Yeah, and uh, you're correct that there would be – uh, plenty of debates over the definition of atheism. It's just something I've never. I mean, in some ex, to some extent, I, I understand it, uh, but a, a lot of times I'm just like, okay, let's move on to something else that doesn't really matter. Uh, speaking to the <laughs> speaking to the Christians and the theists out there as well, it's just kind of. Uh, uh, I, but I think the distinction you made would actually solve the problem, which is the way I would solve it too. Is I get it. Okay, we can agree that the 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 term atheism has a philosophical meaning, which means no gods exist. But uh, there's also, you know, you can uh, qualify that in different ways and say, yeah, I don't hold to that position like you just said. Uh, I just don't find the arguments that theists or Christians or Muslims or uh, Jews or whoever put forward, I don't find their arguments convincing. So uh, that God may exist, but uh, it's really an epistemological point, I think, which is if he exists, uh, we either can't know it or I don't have good reason to believe it yet. So um, I think that's a perfectly consistent and coherent view to hold, which is why I don't ever quibble about it. Um, but but ag then again, a, a lot of people won't. Uh, I don't I don't know about a lot of people. I just made that up as if I've done some statistics. But uh, 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 there are there there are some atheists who who uh, will just say no. That's the incorrect definition of atheism. And it's at that point I'm like, no, that's the correct definition. But if you want to hold to something else, you know, you're welcome to. Like like you just said. Um, so I, I like the way you put it, and I think that's perfectly coherent, and that's why I don't quibble about it on the internet with people. Um, I, I would quibble about it with people if they're trying to 
you know, like if I was you and uh, some Christian was trying to say that's inconsistent or something, then I'd be like, well, this is, I can defend this position, you know. Uh, but I'm just saying me as a Christian or as a theist, I don't quibble about it with atheists because it doesn't really matter to me. Um, but a lot of things don't matter to me that matter to Well, <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say a lot of times from both Christians and atheists, I get that like, oh, well, you're not an atheist then. You're an agnostic. Mm. And it, agnostic has ha, has become like – has become a, a word to mean that you don't know whether or not a God exists and you don't, you don't know what you believe. And um, I'm perfectly fine if people want to want to say that they're an agnostic. Uh, I, 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 I'm not sitting here trying to say that that particular position doesn't exist. I, I think that the pure agnostic sort of position can exist, but um, I, I prefer, I, I just, I, I like the organization of, you know, having, agnostic and then atheist because you can be both you cannot know whether or not a god exists but you choose not to believe in one okay. I, I feel like the belief part and the knowledge claim uh, can uh, should be separate but i don't want anybody out there to think that i that i don't consider agnosticism to be a real position hmm. uh i'm just saying that for me i can be agnostic and atheist at the same time gotcha uh, defining it the way that I did. Yeah. I'm just I'm having a thought experiment in my head like what I would do. And that would be if I would, came to the conclusion that Christianity was false, then I might – I don't know. What would the step be for me? I might be a Jew. Probably not. I probably would then just be a, a classical theist and then a deist and then an agnostic. And then I don't know what would make me accept the proposition God does not exist. So I probably would never be an atheist in the hard sense. Um, well, yeah. So I, I, I agree that – well, for me at least, I consider the positions of 100 percent God does exist and 100 percent God does not exist to be equally tenable. Uh, so like I, I don't think that you can prove 100 percent that God does exist, yeah. but I also don't think that you can 100 percent prove that God doesn't exist. Right. So – Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... I guess I agree with that. That's good enough for me. It's good enough for me. Not again. I I pick my battles. I don't I don't choose to quibble about things. And you're probably correct. Um, now, that's 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 been a good discussion, kind of a long discussion we've had there. And we haven't even come to the 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 reason that we became acquainted with one another in the first place, uh, which was the subject of uh, Jesus mythicism. Um, right. And rather than me explain it, let me uh, hand it over to you. Uh, explain to the audience what Jesus mythicism is and perhaps what it's not. Okay. Uh, well, Jesus mythicism is kind of a wide category because of its past. Uh, in the past, Jesus mythicism hasn't really had a lot of scholarship behind it, and there's been a lot of crank theories uh, run amok out there. I've actually uh, – I've got a list uh, somewhere around here of people that just have horrible, like, mythicist positions, and uh, I – I, 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 I really do just disregard anything that doesn't have some kind of scholarship to back it up, which I know that many of you out there are like, there's no scholarship to back it up at all. But <laughs> there, there are scholars, yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, modern Jesus mythicism, though, is very much backed by scholarship. It's the position that Jesus never actually walked the earth and that he was a mythical figure from the start and that the evidence that we have – 
most likely points to that particular conclusion. It doesn't rule out that he that that he could exist or or anything like that. Um, I think that there's a there's a small chance that he could have existed. Like uh, I think uh, I know Richard Carrier gives it about a thirty three percent chance. Uh, regardless, though, I think that the the the, the majority um, of the evidence points towards him not existing, but there is definitely a chance that he could have existed. And I think that that's really like that particular split right there is kind of the most tenable position, uh, you know, being agnostic on whether or not he he did exist. I'm just more convinced that he probably didn't. And so that's why. I started off always saying like Jesus didn't exist or, you know, something like that, something really kind of hardline, but really the mythicist position, the most tenable mythicist position says that Jesus probably didn't exist. And that's just due to the, uh, uh, you know, the, the subjective nature, uh, of history. Uh, mm-hmm. when we look at historical evidence, um, you'll find a lot of opinions and a lot of subjectiveness that's worked into it. And that's what makes doing history hard. But just when it comes down to it, Jesus mythicism, the most probable position is that Jesus, uh, didn't walk the earth, that he was a mythological, uh, character from the start. Okay. Thank you. Um, so it seems to me, at least from what I gather from uh, uh, your own uh, videos that you've made, uh, Richard Carrier, Robert Price, uh, the other uh, scholars that you've referred to, Fitzgerald and others, that a lot of the weight or the the anchors or something like that, uh, horrible at metaphors, uh, the main thing that mythicism rests on uh, is at least in large part, one, that the Gospels are not adequate attestation to Jesus's uh, historical existence, and two, that Paul does not attest to a historical Jesus. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would I would agree with uh, both of those positions. Yeah. So when it comes to the Gospels, um, what what sources do you think like lie behind this, the synoptic Gospels? So I'm thinking of uh, the the synoptic problem. Um, are you familiar with that term? Yeah. Okay. I, I figured you were. You seem like someone who's read up on it, but um, and perhaps I'll, I'll give you then the opportunity to explain what that is for the audience—a synop- synoptic problem—and uh, kind of how do you solve it? And so I'm basically getting at. So I'm thinking about in terms of historical attestation that Jesus did exist, and I, and of course you've already done a critique of my videos where I laid out a number of sources within the Gospels that are attesting mm-hmm. to this and. Um, I think I said like four or five, and I really drew those numbers from Bart Ehrman's work, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, but how many sources do you see there? How do you solve that problem? I guess I'll just leave it open like that. Okay, so you're you're wondering like um, if uh, from my from my point of view, yeah, how like how how were the gospels written if there wasn't a person? Uh, that did all the things, right? Uh, maybe I'll just go ahead and go f- work from there, and, and I can ask more specific questions if I need to, I suppose. Okay. Uh, well, um, so in in my in my view, and I would say the majority of scholarship's view uh, on the Gospels has Mark being written first in the seventies, and then you've got Matthew being written shortly after that, and about. 80, 80s to mid eighties, and then you got Luke being written somewhere in the nineties, most likely after ninety three, if I'm not mistaken, and then John is most likely written in the second century, and um, so what what we have there is is with our earliest source, Mark, that would be 
where you would want to look for your best evidence. And Mark doesn't name his sources or anything like that. So we don't know what kind of sources he could have been using. Most likely he did have some kind of oral source, uh, but we don't know like where that oral source got their information from. We definitely know that Mark's author was reading uh, Paul's writing because there's a lot of Paul that's worked into uh, Mark's writing. And then there's also the curious case of Jesus Ben uh, Jesus Ben Ananias. Uh, who has a pretty um, similar skeletal structure to his like life um, it, it, that's contained in Josephus, and it matches up with Mark and and the progression of Jesus, not pri- like not prior to him entering into Jer- Jerusalem, but uh, you know as far as his, uh, his his passion and everything like that, the Jesus Ben Ananias story matches up on several points, not just like one or two, but it's I think it's about twenty two different points for uh, that connect between Jesus Ben Ananias and the Jesus of Mark's gospel, and then of course Matthew, both Matthew and Luke copy off Mark, and then John read all three of them and uh, did his own thing. Um, and so that's what I th- that's how I think the gospels came to be but I also think that that's why they're not really all that reliable because we don't have any idea who the source or, or you know who they reference um, in fact Mark only references the scriptures uh, in his writing and so there's nothing to tie the uh, gospel of Mark to any eyewitness testimony here on earth mm-hmm. so for for me at least, that's why I don't consider the the gospels, the synoptics, um, to to really be all that reliable. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's helpful, and I have some follow up questions if that's all right with you. Um, that's fine. It's going to be okay. Do you agree that Mark's gospel does present the figure of Jesus as a historical person? Mm, see, it kind of depends on on how you look at it, because Mark's gospel starts off with Jesus being dunked in the water by John the Baptist, right? Mm-hmm. That's where his, that's where his story starts, and in that, and th- this is this is backed up in the scholarship, and I I know I've got papers around here if you're interested in it, if you haven't heard of this yet, sure. but Mark's gospel is actually an adoptionist view of the Messiah figure. So when when Jesus is dunked in the water and baptized by John the Baptist, he comes out, the heavens part, and then the preexistent archangel that's known as the Messiah inhabits Jesus' body and then basically walks around, does Jesus things. When he dies on the cross, he dies, and the Messiah spirit or archangel then ascends back up into heaven to take a seat at the right hand of the Father, right? And this is congruent with what we see in uh, Philo's work that was written, um, you know, uh, right around the same time as Paul, uh, having this uh, messianic, uh, preexistent archangel figure. And you also see a lot of the preexistent archangel stuff all throughout the other gospels, especially in John, uh, in the very first book uh, or first chapter. Uh, first line, first chapter, uh, where it talks about Jesus being a pre-existent figure uh, that existed alongside God at the creation of the universe. So, when you look at Mark's gospel, you, you have to understand at the at the time when the author of Mark was writing, he was writing about the Messiah figure that was already pre-existent in heaven, descending and inhabiting the body of a common person, Jesus, and then doing the Jesus things, and then you know 
resur- uh, not not resurrecting, but um, uh, dying on the cross, ascending, you know, after that, and then uh, resurrecting, being resurrected from the dead. Even though there's no in the original ending of Mark, there's no like post-resurrection appearances. Uh, you just have the women running away from the tomb, but it just shows that he's been resurrected. Yeah, and so at the just mentioning that the end of Mark's gospel, you also don't see anything about uh, Jesus. The historical figure or the uh, incarnated archangel ascending back into heaven either do you well no no, no. i mean uh you know when when the women find the tomb the the things already rolled away the tomb's just empty and um i want to say that there's an angel there that tells them go and tell or and tell nobody or go and tell the disciples, but the women run away telling nobody. Mm. Uh, so the, the, there's no like Jesus, you know, turning into an angel and like, you know, ascending into heaven. I guess it's just kind of assumed since, you know, Jesus talks about how he's going to be seated at the right hand of the father and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, okay. Well then that, that would be uh, a major disagreement that would be hard to go from there. Um, but let's go ahead and do this anyway. Uh, so you have you have Mark, and then you said Matthew and Luke copy Mark. How much of Mark do Matthew and Luke copy? Um, well, I'm <clears throat> I can't remember the exact percentages. <laughs> no, it's okay. uh, I know. Uh, huh? No, I wouldn't expect you to. That's okay. I mean, like I wouldn't have an exact percentage either. I'm saying that's okay. Okay. Uh, so Matthew copies uh, most of Mark, and then Luke copies uh a good portion of mark uh, I, I know i think it's like over 75 percent. i know matthew's probably somewhere around the 90 percent mark yeah, maybe yeah. uh so but but also luke is is copying from matthew which i know is kind of contentious with some uh apologists out there but there's good evidence to show that luke was copying from both uh mark and matthew in order to generate his gospel yeah well i I agree that apologists might have contention with the Luke borrowing from Matthew, but the reason that they might have a contention with that is because a lot of scholars believe that the Luke and Matthew are independent, and that's where the Q source comes into play. Now, like you pointed out in your video, uh, even an evangelical scholar like Mark Goodacre is arguing for the non-existence of Q, and I agree that he makes a good case. But it is the case that uh, many, or perhaps even most, uh, New Testament scholars themselves do believe in the existence of Q. Um, but uh, j- just well, to point I, out I, that it's not just apologists is all I'm saying. But Okay. Well, I was going to ask, does that make it more likely to be true? What does what make what more likely to be true? Sorry, I missed it. Well, like, let's just say that um, most, uh, just for the sake of argument, let's just say most scholars agree that Q exists. Does that most likely mean that it doesn't exist? Oh, no, no, of course not. I was just pointing out uh, your wording was I know many apologists would like to say that they didn't copy, that Luke did not copy Matthew. And I was just saying, well, they, they, it's not just apologists, it's New Testament scholars as well. Uh, so I wasn't saying apologists should use this argument that, well, most New Testament scholars think it, so therefore it's true. I don't think you should argue that way, no. Uh, I was just pointing out it's not just apologists; it's also New Testament scholars. But okay. Uh, but anyway, sorry. Um, but there is material that's found in Matthew. Um, I want to say about twenty to thirty percent, and a and a larger portion found in Luke that are not found in Mark at all. 
So how do you account for, it's called the special material of Mark and Luke, and um, scholars will use the terms L-source and M-source for both of those respectively. So the special material in Matthew that's not found in Mark's gospel is called the M-source, and the special material found in Luke uh, that's not found in Mark's gospel or in Matthew is called the L-source. And so they're, they're not found in Mark, and they're not found in one another. They're completely unique to themselves. Where do you think those, that material came from? Uh, well, I mean, <clears throat> so, uh, like you said before with Mark Goodacre and the Q, Q source, um, I, and, and this applies to the L and the M sources or whatnot. I really don't think that it's helpful to just invent sources. Um, I also don't see a compelling argument that would suggest that, Luke couldn't have just made stuff up on his own. Like what, why does there have to be an L source behind it? Why couldn't have Luke just, you know, made up unique material for his particular gospel? Uh, same thing with Matthew. Why couldn't Matthew just make up, uh, you know, unique material. And then there, there, the portions of, of Matthew that also appear in Luke, it just seems like Luke would have borrowed from, mm -hmm. from Matthew. I, I just, I don't see any compelling evidence that would suggest, suggest that that also isn't a uh explanation like yeah. there's nothing that shows that it's that that particular series of events didn't happen yeah i think that's on the table for an explanation i think this argument works better with the q source than it does the m source and i think it works better for the m source than it does the l source so in other words i'm saying i think we have the most evidence that the l source is real and and you said that you didn't see any good reason I'd like to offer one and then see what you have to say to it not necessarily to debate you on this point but just to see what you think about it um, which is kind of a debate but anyway uh, the L source so Luke claims to have access to multiple sources in his own gospel in this uh, in the prologue to his gospel verses 1 through chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 where he talks about you know there's plenty of uh, things that have been written about Jesus beforehand and he's gonna go and investigate it so he makes the claim and then even you have said, and I would agree, that Luke did use at least one source, which would be Mark. Um, and then you, then you also believe that Luke used Matthew. So you do believe that he used two sources. Uh, so he oh, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Or, or just one. Do you think he just used Matthew and, and this, the material that's – go ahead. No, go ahead and, and, and clarify. Okay, well, um, so Luke, the author of Luke definitely used a lot of different sources to write his gospel. For one thing, normally when referencing Luke, it, generally people talk about Luke-Acts because uh, the author of Luke definitely wrote Acts. Okay. And so he definitely used a lot of sources, but uh, it's not going to be the ones that you're thinking about. Um, Luke uh, used Matthew and uh, used Mark definitely because we find content from those in Luke. But Luke also uses Homer, the, uh, uh, well, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Uh, he uses Josephus. Uh, so, I mean, he does have a lot of different sources that he's pulling from. It's just none of them can be reliably shown to be eyewitness accounts. Uh, none of them can be reliably shown uh, to be this L document uh, or, or anything like that. Uh, so really the, the, uh, like the, the L, M, and Q documents are all hypothetical documents, meaning that they don't physically exist. Right, they're not extant, yeah. Right. 
they, they don't physically exist now. So there's no way for us to really know, you know, what was in them or even if they existed in the first place. So uh, I guess considering all of the sources that Luke had in order to generate his gospel, it doesn't really seem necessary to invent this other source that he could have potentially pulled from when we don't really have good supporting evidence to say that it, it existed. Okay. Do you, do you think that Luke is presenting a historical Jesus? I mean, the, his prologue seems very much like uh, a bios or a biography or a his, historiography that he, he really, he at least does believe that he's doing his, his, his history that he really is investigating things, and that's how he presents himself. Do you agree with that? Uh, well, n- well, no, um, because, uh, I mean, Luke was obviously written at least after 93, so there's no way that he could have been an eyewitness, and there was no way that he could have had access to eyewitnesses, and we don't know of any actual eyewitness documents. So, uh, I mean, I get how Luke starts out his gospel, but just because he starts it out that way, proclaiming himself, what? Correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't he proclaim himself like the best historian or something like that? Uh, let me. I can pull it up real quick if you want, because uh, I can't quote. The scriptures for memory. All oh, that. I can't. Uh, he says, uh, <laughs> since many have attempted to compile an account concerning the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning passed on to us, it seemed best to me also because I have followed all things carefully from, be- from the beginning to write them down in orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty concerning the things about which you were taught. So that's, right. that's Luke's prologue. Um. Right. And I, I, I can't remember if, if he ever says that he's the best historian or whatnot. But in any case, um, uh, he, he claims that the eyewitnesses have handed this down, but he doesn't name who these eyewitnesses are. He doesn't name his sources. This thing, uh, I mean, his the start of his gospel really doesn't look like the other kind of historical documents that you would find in history. Like, um, you know um, – when we talk about who was it, uh, Alexander the Great, uh, Arian is our best source, and he's 500 years later. There's no way that he had like physical access to the actual eyewitnesses of Alexander the Great. But what we do, what he did have extant to him then, is for the, these firsthand eyewitness accounts that he got directly from. <coughs> sorry. Um, that he got, you know, directly, uh, directly from uh, whatever, whatever kind of library he was. I think he was using some kind of state library or something like that. But in any case, uh, the point is, is that he had eyewitness accounts, you know, to for him, and we know exactly who those eyewitnesses were because he tells us about them, and we just simply don't find that in any of the gospels. Like we don't find Luke telling us who these eyewitnesses were, what their names are, what what documents they wrote. We we know the names of various documents now that we don't have any kind of access to at all, but it's because of how historians wrote at this time that we know uh, you know some of what those documents contain but more importantly their titles their authors we don't know who actually wrote the gospels they're all anonymous it, the very beginning there in 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 Luke does not name the author the the author is not named throughout the entire 
uh, uh, entirety of Luke uh, or an Acts. I believe it was Papias in the second century that was the first one to uh, talk about you know who, who the authors of these were, with no evidence to support the fact that or the idea that you know these are these are the authors who uh, he says they are. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, get, get, given that. I really don't think that Luke had access to any kind of eyewitnesses because of the point in time that he wrote and uh, because of the fact that we just simply don't have anybody else referencing an eyewitness to Jesus. Okay. Uh, I, I was just um, – I mean, first of all, he, he does name his, the recipient of his letter as Theophilus. It would be an odd thing uh, to name a, the recipient and then the recipient not know who the letter was coming from. Um, so I think it, it's uh, pretty clear that the name would have been attached to this letter. And then, of course, as you were talking about with church tradition passed down is, is that it was Luke, and you don't find any contradiction in the church history attestation to Luke being the author of this gospel. But anyway, that would be a separate uh, uh, conversation to have. I think there are good arguments for Luke's, uh, the traditional authorship of Luke. Um, but anyway, I, I was initially just pointing out that, uh, just to take the, the very first verse in Luke, he says, since many have attempted to compile an account, uh, so this, this would seem like a, a written uh, source concerning the events, the events that have been fulfilled among us, and he names his recipient as Theophilus. It seems that Theophilus would know that this was completely bogus, um, if it was just Luke making stuff up. So I think there's actually is pretty good indication that he is using written sources to com to make a compilation, just as he says plenty of other people have already done. And, and then you also agree that Mark has done this and that Luke, either directly from Mark or through Matthew, uh, does have access to Mark's source as a source. So I'm just wondering why we, it would be uh, unrealistic to say that Luke did have other sources about Jesus from that time period. Um, so like you're asking why doesn't it make sense that he would have other sources? Yeah, like, for, like from, from that the, time period, yeah. like from eyewitnesses or something. Uh, not, I mean, they they wouldn't even have to be an eyewitness, but just sources that uh, were recording things about Jesus at that time period, in the in the first oh, century. Well, well, I mean, he very well could have. Uh, I, I wasn't trying to necessarily suggest that, um, you know, he he didn't have you know any any other sources that could have talked about Jesus it's uh it's it's perfectly reasonable that he could have which uh are you still there yeah i'm still here sorry yeah okay okay sorry no my my stuff was freaking out there oh, for no, a second oh you're good sorry um so uh, it, it's perfectly plausible that he could have had uh some other sources uh or, or whatnot the, the problem is is that he doesn't name who his sources are he, he doesn't name like we the only reason why we know that he copied from mark and matthew is that because uh the 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 stuff you know though sometimes verbatim word uh, usage is found in luke's gospel uh, it, it's the same way that we know that he used, um, you know, like uh, Homer's Iliad and uh, Odyssey uh, in order to generate uh, Paul's shipwreck narratives in Acts. Um, you know, he uh, he pulled from those the style of those. That's why you have those wee passages in those areas, um, because that's that's how the Iliad and the Odyssey were written. Um, 
and and Josephus, uh, we we know that uh, Luke used Josephus because of certain certain things that Josephus says that are wrong are said in the exact same way and order in Luke's. And that's just one particular example that I can pull off the top of my head. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we have these connections and these are hard connections because we can, I, we can identify and we can pull, you know, uh, this information from it. And we know that he used these particular sources, but we don't know what he used um, you know, outside of those, I mean, it's very plausible that he could have had other sources, but plausible or, or, or possible does not mean probable. Well, and I yeah. think that I think that's where a lot of people get um, kind of confused at is that they, they think of a possibility. Oh, it's possible he used some other source. Yeah, it's possible, but we don't really know what that source could have been. It, I mean, it's just inventing sources like the Q source or L source or M source. Um, there's no real point in creating these new sources if you don't have evidence to suggest that those sources were there. Mm-hmm. Okay, I agree with your proposition that possible does not mean probable or plausible, uh, even though you had been using the word plausible, which I thought was going to be uh, – Interesting, but you, I think you corrected yourself there, so I'm not going <laughs> to. But uh, I, I think it is probable that Luke, for sure, uh, for, by for sure, I mean it's for sure probable that Luke had uh, sources concerning Jesus specifically because we, as you, uh, again, you believe and I believe, as every, everybody does, that he at least used Mark and possibly Matthew and or a Q source, but we'll just say Matthew, so he used Mark and Matthew. Or Mark via Matthew, and then he claims that there are more sources um, available written about these events. These events, events being specifically about Jesus, uh, available to him that Theophilus is aware of as well. Um, and then we can back him up with at least one source being Mark or possibly Matthew. And so I think there is positive evidence to weigh in favor. So that makes it more probable. That there there were other sources and he had access to them and if and, and you may not find that convincing but where I'm really gonna I'm just gonna land the plane now and and I'm landing the plane at this if there seems to have been multiple sources and Luke has access to them and he in fact is using them to create his narrative about Jesus um, and that's the point they're about Jesus and so I think you have multiple first century sources about the existence of Jesus uh, if you may not agree with that. Um, Assessment, but if you did agree with that assessment, would that uh, would that change your mind at all on Jesus mythicism? Uh, no. Can you explain why? Well, I mean, <clears throat> it, it doesn't really handle the timeline in which we know Luke is written, because uh, if memory serves, Luke is supposed to be like uh, uh, the um, partner of Paul, right? Yeah, the travel companion of Paul. Yeah, right. And so, um, which I can't remember. I, I don't think Luke claims to be one of the disciples, does he? No, Luke's not a disciple of Jesus. Right. Okay. Okay. Just making sure that 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 I had that correct in my head. Um, <clears throat> but you see, the problem is, is that Luke, uh, whoever the traveling companion of Paul was, wouldn't have been around like in the in 93 and so there's no way that luke could have written that particular gospel so regardless of what kind of sources that that the author of luke could have had um 
we don't have enough evidence right now to solidly establish that he used like eyewitness accounts or even secondary uh, uh, secondary accounts. Uh, that, that would be people that wrote recording, you know, eyewitness accounts. Um, so I, I, I just don't see anything that suggests that that is more plausible or probable rather than, uh, you know, Luke, uh, the, the author of Luke just making stuff up um, and, and using these various outside sources in order to fill his gospel and, and acts with historical, you know, uh, color. Okay. So even if you were to grant uh, the assessment that I laid out there, uh, you're saying even even if we even if we granted that Luke was written in 93, uh, which would be up certainly be up for debate. Uh, even if we granted that, you're talking about 60 years after the uh, supposed crucifixion of Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, right? And so, and if Luke was using multiple sources about Jesus, again, we're granting what my assessment was there a second ago. Then you have within 60 years of his life multiple accounts of of his life, and you're saying that still wouldn't be enough. Well, because I mean, it, this is all just hypothetical. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, purely hypothetical. Granting all those things. Yeah, I'm not saying you would grant those things. Well, I mean, if you it, <clears throat> if you could solidly ha- like if you could have documents that were actual eyewitness testimony and and they were they were real documents of eyewitness testimony of Jesus on earth then i i would definitely give up like the mythicist position mm-hmm. but the problem is is that uh you know it, we just simply don't have those we don't have any indication that those actually exist we can play hypothetical games all day but the the point of the fact is is that Luke doesn't tell us who these eyewitnesses were, what documents he used. We have to go in and we have to sort of play detective and figure out the the documents that we know that he used. So while it doesn't rule out the possibility of him using these other documents, I don't think that there's any kind of actual evidence to suggest that he did use these other documents. And I mean, for me at least in just inventing these other documents, uh, really doesn't really isn't persuasive. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I want to move on now. Uh, that was an interesting dialogue. Thanks for, uh, kind of digressing there and answering all my follow-up questions. Uh, I know you weren't prepared, no f- prepared for those, but, uh, thank you for answering them. Uh, I want to move on to, uh, Paul, cause I think this is kind of the are you still there? Oh, I had something pop up on my screen. I thought it was you going away. I was like, oh, no, where, where did John, John go? He's still here. He's still here. Screw this. <laughs> yeah, no more follow-up questions. Boom. Uh, so uh, moving on to the, the, the subjects of Paul and his beliefs about Jesus, I think this is uh, plays a big part in the Jesus mythicist. I think it really carries the most weight for mythicists, um, and uh, that's because it was— uh, because uh, Paul is believed to have be, been the, uh, with good evidence, to be the earliest Christian writings that we have. Um, does does this play kind of the biggest part for you, or, or you know what? I didn't even ask this question um, going back, but pro- maybe this was what led you into Jesus mythicism in the first place. But I actually would like to ask you that question: What got you into uh, Jesus mythicism in the first place? Oh well, uh, so interestingly enough, uh, I was on Facebook and I was arguing uh, with um, Christians and atheists, and uh, I found myself talking about history 
and you know trying to establish that Jesus his, existed in history because I was like of course he existed in history what are you talking about like I had the exact same position as everybody that I've come in contact since but the problem is is that I went looking for the evidence to suggest that Jesus existed in history because I expected there to be some kind of like eyewitness account or something like that like actual eyewitness account and what I found was which I think the discussion was on Pilate because uh, there's a Pilate stone and so I mean we know that Pilate existed in history but when I tried to find uh, solid evidence that Jesus existed in history I just I really couldn't find any. Um, you know, I, I found all of the, you know, the the typical arguments that, for instance, like you used uh, in your videos, and um, I really didn't find those convincing uh, for reasons that I've laid out uh, in, in multiple videos. But um, I didn't find those convincing, and so it, it was really just it, it's kind of similar to the to the God question. You know, yeah, I just that's what I was gathering. Yeah. Yeah, I just didn't find enough evidence to convince me that he actually did exist in history. And, you know, I, I, I started just reading a whole bunch of uh, books. Um, yeah, I started off with David Fitzgerald's um, uh, Nailed book. Yeah. Uh, and, and that kind of got, got me dipping my toes in the water about it. And then I started reading, you know, more, more and more stuff. And, you know, I would always see those memes where they compare like Jesus to Horus and they would say, hey, he had, you know, 12 disciples and was born on December 25th, just like Jesus. And, you know, I did. I didn't know whether or not that was true or not. Um but, uh, you know, once I started looking more into the history of it, I, you know, I obviously know now that, uh, you know, of course, Jesus isn't a carbon copy of Horus or any other. He's not a carbon copy of any other deity in history. That's not to say that, you know, he doesn't have some borrowed elements from uh, different dying and rising gods. But, um, you know, that, that 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 kind of got me down the sure. road of of. Jesus mythicism was trying to find the evidence and then not being convinced by the evidence. Yeah. Uh, how much weight does the uh, belief that Paul did not uh, believe in historical Jesus? If it could, in other words, if it could be shown that Paul did believe in historical Jesus, would that change your mind? I mean, of course, I've, I've looked at all the evidence in Paul, and I'm not convinced. But right. if there was, if, if, if I guess hypothetically, if there was some new document that was verified, written by Paul, and he definitely talks about how Jesus walked on Earth, uh, and and provides like a, some kind of eyewitness testimony uh, to to him walking on Earth, um, then yeah, any uh, pretty much any evidence that could solidly and 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 reliably place Jesus in history. That would make me become, a, you know, not a mythicist quick. Um, but the, the problem is, is that um, I've looked at all of the passages in Paul and I just I'm, I'm simply not convinced uh, by Paul that Jesus actually existed in history. Yeah. And, uh, and I suppose you're about to do a, a video on this, actually, yeah. responding to, to my video on Paul's beliefs about Jesus. And uh, look forward to that. Um, I don't know if I... Um, mentioned this passage or not in that video is a short video i'm i'm and and that was my first really actually short video i normally do stuff like mm -hmm. this that goes on forever uh and <laughs> I, so i uh and by that i wasn't critiquing you i'm critiquing myself um i ramble a lot um 
And so I was kind of testing out, should I do more shorter videos every once in a while to see, you know, maybe my audience would prefer something short, which, you know, you kind of got to sacrifice some things if you're going to go short, like I don't get to explain everything as well as I'd like to. Uh, so mm -hmm. I was really trying that out. Um, I might do some more. I don't know. But anyway, see, I have ADD and I just go off rambling like that. But anyway, uh, in the passage is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 27, which I'm, I'm sure you've come across. I'm just interested to hear uh, your explanation here. And I'll read it, and I know you. I don't know if you have a Bible in front of you or not, and so I'm, I'm, I may put you at a disadvantage here. So I'm sorry, uh, but um, I'm I'm kind of assuming that you're already familiar and you've already got it mm -hmm. worked up in the video you're going to publish uh, here in a few days. But the the passage says in in First Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, says, "For I, this is Paul, uh, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, uh, the Corinthians." that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, likewise also the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it uh, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So a lot of people would give that a, a first glance and just say, uh, okay, uh, Jesus is eating bread, drinking from a cup, um, he's talking to people, he's talking about his death, he's going to die, insinuating he's going to die. This all sounds very human. Um, how do you interpret this text as not referring to a, a human historical Jesus? Well, I mean, he doesn't say he's going to die. Doesn't say he's... He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, okay, yeah, so, this is I probably mean, Paul talking. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, okay, so my contention with this particular thing, and I, and, and you do mention it in the video uh, that I'm, I'm preparing. Well, I've already prepared. I just, I just got to record it. Um, it. It's that first line there. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. So... Um, let me ask you this question. Where did Paul get this information? Um, it's a good question, and it is one that's debated in scholarship, uh, which is, did is Paul claiming this to be a divine revelation, or is this a apostolic uh, sources that he has in mind here that he received it from? Um, and so this is something that I, I would definitely need to, to study on. Um, he does mm -hmm. elsewhere in First Thessalonians, I was going to pull it up, but I'm not going to be able to pull that up quick enough. Uh, he does in First Thessalonians talk about how he, um, how the Thessalonians received from Paul God's word, and so he, something Paul commonly does is talk about him preaching, but it being God's word, or them receiving God's word, even though he's the one that's clearly saying it. And so he doesn't really draw this hard and fast line between. Uh, the gospel being from human people and being a divine revelation, he kind of fuses the two together. Um, he certainly does it in the First Thessalonians passion I have in mind, but I think he does it elsewhere. But uh, anyway, that that's just to say, not to make the case that it's certainly not divine revelation. That's just to say that that kind of makes it difficult to decide whenever you look at these things, is that Paul doesn't make a hard—go ahead. Well, I was just going to—it's very curious that you say— um, you, you, when you said because, let me make sure that I get this right. You, sure. You're saying that that Paul got his information from other people. Oh, I'm saying this is the debate. I'm not picking a side. I'm I'm trying to set this up for the audience or for you or for me, whoever. I'm saying Paul, okay. Paul, at least in First Thessalonians, and I wish I, and if 
I don't want to waste my time trying to find it. Uh, it would be a long pause here. But in First Thessalonians, at least, I was just reading this. I know about this verse because I just happened to be reading it in my quiet time the other day. Uh, Paul is saying that the clearly he's the one that has preached the gospel to the Thessalonians, and yet they received it as God's word. Um, and so I'm saying he doesn't necessarily draw a hard and um, fast line between well, divine revelation and words being spoken by human beings. And so that kind of makes it difficult to, or at least that makes it possible kind of either way. we got to look at these things. Um, he doesn't use a, a, a Greek participle here in, in the First Corinthians passage that he uses elsewhere when he's clear, like the Galatians passage where he's clearly talking about uh, divine revelation. And so there's some there's some concerns on both sides here uh, is he making a divine revelation is he passing on information that he got from cephas or james or somebody else or a different apostle um it's 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 up for debate and i don't necessarily have a i'm not necessarily choosing sides at this point okay well uh so i'm not convinced at all that he got it from uh you know anybody um, like on earth. My, my primary evidence for that is actually Galatians 1.11, which is for, <clears throat> and I'm reading from the ESV version. Um, Paul, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So, for me, I whenever I read passages like 1 Corinthians 11, 23, I, I, I try to take Paul's theology in general uh, into context here because Paul was writing in about a 10-year time span between 50 and, and 60. And so, I mean, it, by the time that he's writing all of this down, I mean, he's already got his theology well established. And so – Right here, when I read, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, and even in the Thessalonians thing, Jesus appears to the apostles in visions, gives them the information, and then the apostles are the ones that disseminate the information on behalf of Jesus. So when he talks right here about the last meal or last supper, um, his his source, his citation is his vision of Jesus. Jesus is the one that told him about this. Jesus is the one that is talking about how he died because Paul never knew Jesus while he was alive. He only knew about Jesus after he died and resurrected. So when he's talking about this, this is a replacement for the, you know, like the Passover meal, the, um, uh, it, it, it's just it, – it's the way that, that people re-up their commitment basically uh, to to Jesus. And that's why he says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes right. um, because it's, it's foretelling that Jesus is going to be returning. And so basically in this passage, I don't feel like it actually gives us any kind of indication of his, like a historical nature of it because of the fact that the source is totally devoid of any connection to a human source, uh, you know, at, at all. Um, it, it's only the only connection, the only citation that Paul uses are, are scriptures and visions of Jesus. So the best that you could talk about is how Paul got this from maybe the scriptures. Maybe Paul didn't receive it in a vision, but that 
Jesus somehow guided him in his understanding of the scriptures, which is um, how how he gets some of the theology that he teaches. Um, he gets it from scriptures. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's how I would take that verse. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, and I'm happy to re- uh, to uh, see that uh, Paul is, um, is claiming to have received this as a divine revelation. That's perfectly fine. Uh, and the reason I, I, I'm willing to do that is because of, of something actually that you said yourself, and I don't want to try to um, uh, misrepresent you or trap you in your own words, so perhaps you'll, after I say this you can um, um, you know, rehash things if, if you want to or you might agree with uh, my assessment there. But you said that Paul did not know Jesus until after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, and the reason I think that's significant is because I think the, the key to this passage is uh, actually there where he says, uh, uh, for I received from the Lord, and we can interpret that as a divine revelation, though I think it is up for debate, uh, what I also passed on to you, uh, so Paul has passed this on to the Corinthians, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed. Um, now, um, uh, Richard Carrier would say that this should be, uh, a better translation would be uh, on the night in which he was uh, delivered up, and, and Carrier himself says this is obviously talking about the night in which he died. Uh, now, you just said that, and I would agree, I think everyone would agree, that Paul did not know Jesus until after his death and after his resurrection. And so what follows here uh, about the bread and about the, the cup and, and the eating and the things like that, this all happened on the night in which he was betrayed, which obviously Paul was not present on that night because, as you said, Paul did not know Jesus until after his death and resurrection. Um, and, and obviously, and so what that means is here where he says, um, this is my body which is for you, these words Jesus spoke on the night in which he was betrayed, which Paul clearly wasn't present on that night. And so Jesus' words here are clearly not directed at Paul because Paul wasn't present on the night in which Jesus was uh, delivered up or betrayed, and neither were the Corinthians. Or um, I think Carrier tries to say that this you here, and he's correct in saying that it is a plural form, it would be like saying y'all, this is for y'all, um, it is clearly not for all believers everywhere. It's just making some uh, general theological point that I'm dying for everyone, um, which is obviously true, but not everyone was present on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. So I think... Uh, the question is, who's he? Who's he talking to? Well, I mean, uh, I, I feel like you know Paul is talking about you know what Jesus told him, and so this is talking. You know, it's Jesus talking to you know Paul. So when he when he talks to when he says the you part here, I mean, he would be talking to. Like Paul, but in 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 reality, I, I, f- I feel like he's just he's setting up like the Christian tradition, like he's he's establishing instead of like the Passover meal and, and all of these other things, he's setting up and he's talking to general like Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that 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 would be more likely than um you know some kind of like hidden historical citation that hmm. that could be hidden in that so i agree with the assessment and this is exactly the assessment um that carrier makes not trying to say that you're like some richard carrier copycat or whatever this is a, a common thing that mythicists hold in common um and you you can perfectly come to that of your own accord obviously so i'm not trying to say that but um i'm just saying that i've read carrier's work on this and uh, this is the route that he goes. He's, he's saying that uh, Jesus here is saying, this is my body, which is for you, Paul and the Corinthians, and by way, all believers. 
that uh, the theology of that is is obviously true and obviously something that Paul believes. In fact, I'd say that he doesn't just think it's for all believers, uh, which is what Carrier says. I think that Jesus died for everyone. Um, not a universalist, but I'm saying it's available for everyone uh, to accept. Uh, however, I, I, I think that these words are originally spoken, as Paul, I, I think, very explicitly and clearly says, on the night in which he was betrayed. So while these words may apply to everyone, uh, Paul and the Corinthians, and I would say me and you, uh, because I believe Jesus died for everyone, th these words obviously apply to everyone. Uh, they were originally spoken on the night in which he was betrayed, which neither you, me, all believers everywhere, Paul or the Corinthians were present. Um, so I agree with what you're saying. I'm just saying it, Paul, I think, clearly believes that these words, words were initially or originally spoken on the night in which he was Jesus was betrayed or delivered up. Well, yeah, but we don't we don't really have any good evidence to suggest that 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 is the exact case because um, of the fact that Paul is totally devoid. Like like he he it would it would be theologically antithetical for Paul to use information that he got from human sources. No, I'm saying he got so, this from Jesus. I would grant that. Oh, okay. Well, then that see that right there is 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 where we would de deviate, I guess, is because I, I really don't think that you know a hallucination of Jesus or a vision of Jesus um, is is good historical data. Oh no 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 no! I'm not saying that it really happened. I'm saying that's what Paul is claiming. Okay. Yeah, I'm well, trying. I'm trying to grant that point to you. Does that make sense? Oh, okay. Okay, sorry. I, I I thought that you were trying to s suggest that this was an indication that he actually existed. No, no, no. I'm saying like, Paul right? believes. Well, I was trying to. So the verse 23 says, "For I received from the Lord." I'm trying to grant to you that the correct interpretation is that Paul believes this to have been divine revelation. Okay. Um, and, and so it, whether he received this from Jesus or from an apostolic source is neither here nor there to me. That's why I was willing to grant that to you. Um, okay, maybe I just misunderstood. No, that's okay. Um, uh, I'm just saying that whether he really received it from Jesus or got it from somebody else or made it up, that's fine. I'm just saying this is what he believes. Uh, not necessarily true. This is just what Paul believes, that on the night in which Jesus was delivered, these things occurred. And then I'm saying, according to Paul himself and you, he was not present on that night. And neither were the Corinthians or all believers everywhere. So... He's, okay. he's talking to somebody else initially well well no i mean <clears throat> well if this is if this is given you know uh, as a infor if this is information from a vision that was given to paul then i mean in this dialogue he would be talking to paul but also in the grander scheme he would be talking to like everybody that would consider jesus to be the savior mm -hmm. uh regardless of whether or not jesus died for everybody um, whoever considers Jesus to be the Savior and and believes in Jesus, he is conveying that this is the ritual that you do. Right. So, I mean, th th that's how I interpret it. No, I interpret it that way, too. I'm agreeing with that, right? So whenever uh, we can say that this was a revelation, that Paul believes this to be a revelation from Jesus, and Jesus here is teaching the theology that his body and his blood is for all who see him as the Savior, like you were saying. Uh, I think that Paul is just Paul's own words indicate that that's not who this these words were originally or initially spoken to. Considering the fact that these words Paul himself says were first spoken on the night in which he was delivered up, and Paul was not present on that night, 
and neither were everyone who sees Jesus as the Savior, and neither were the Corinthian believers. So clearly Jesus is speaking to somebody else initially. Does that make sense? I mean, I see where you're coming from. I just disagree. Okay, that's fine. Um, we can move on from there. Thanks again for digressing and uh, uh, entertaining my follow-up questions, of course. Uh, <laughs> and, and again, I look forward to the video you're going to put out uh, here in a couple of days, and I think everybody else should go watch it as well. Um, and one last question before we get to the bonus segment. We've gone on for quite a while here. This has been, uh, I'll just go ahead and say, this has been one of my favorite conversations to have. Thanks so much, John. Uh, or do you prefer be do you prefer being called John or should I call you Godless Engineer or kind of which one do you prefer? I, well, yeah, it, it doesn't really matter to me. Yeah, well, uh, I, yeah, I just really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day. I'm sure you got a lot going on. Of course, with the coronavirus and everything, you you are kind of uh, as we all are uh, stuck at home. But um, I do appreciate you coming on uh, to the audience. Uh, thanks so much for listening. If you want to uh, watch the bonus segment, five more minutes with Godless Engineer, which you should want to watch, just follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a patron supporter here in a minute we're going to do the five more minute bonus segment and with that uh, subscription over there on patreon you'll not only get access to this bonus segment but all of our previous bonus segments as well as all of our future bonus segments so go over there and become a supporter i really appreciate all the patron supporters all 10 or 12 of you thanks so much <laughs> uh, but uh, so one last question before we do that. Uh, now, in your uh, initial videos, uh, I must say there's kind of, and, and, and I don't want to cause any hostility here, but I do want to say there's kind of a contrast between the godless engineer of those videos and the godless engineer sitting here having a conversation with me, uh, as, I'm, as I'm sure there's a contrast between my original video on Jesus' mythicism and uh, Hayden Clark that you're having a conversation with here right now. Uh, but uh, there was kind of some uh, hostile remarks. Uh, you said that I was the most biased Christian ever, uh, my question is, does the fact that someone is biased make their beliefs false? Um, well, well, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that just because they're biased, uh, it was false, which I, I, I don't remember calling you the, the most biased Christian ever. If I did, then, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll walk that back. Um, maybe I was just trying to be bombastic or something. Sure. And, uh, and I understand that in the land of YouTube, uh, your audience wants entertainment value as well as mine. I'm not saying it's just atheists. Christian audiences want entertainment value too. So I'm not saying that I take offense to any of that. I was just, uh, but to go ahead. Um, but yeah, I mean, we all we all do have biases. Um, I just feel like on the religious faith part, I, I feel like bias has to be a major factor in it, um, because I mean it. You know your your faith kind of like, for instance, your faith kind of requires that you believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, right? Uh, for me to be a Christian, I would have to believe that, yes. Yeah, but I can say so, that in order to be an agnostic atheist, you have to be, um, you have to believe that God most probably does not exist. Well, I mean, to I, I guess so in order to classify yourself, but also uh, I don't feel like on that particular one there's a very big, like um, I, I don't see that as a faith-based position. Like it, that that's necessary for the label, but it, it's not like a faith-based position. I, I feel like faith has a very strong emotional, like uh, I, I guess connection, uh, you know, I, to I get to. Oh, you want me? To, sorry, uh, I'm not trying to interrupt you. I I, I see what you're saying, and I think um, whenever you sit, let's see if we can agree on this. 
uh, whenever you say there's this faith connection and this faith element that weighs heavy, I think what you mean is what you've already described in yourself whenever you um, saw the counter evidence to your faith and you're like, uh, you know, but everybody around me is a Christian and that sort of stuff. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I mean, I guess kind of. That that was when I was struggling with my faith. But I, I feel like I feel like most Christians, you know, are 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 tied to their faith. Obviously, uh, they're very emotionally connected to their faith, and they. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Sure, you know, go ahead. You, no, I don't, I don't, fine, go. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I understand that that your your faith concerns your eternal soul, like afterlife. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I really don't think that people should take that lightly. Um, and I don't expect people to take it lightly. Mm-hmm. So when somebody has a faith-based, uh, faith-based position that seems to require them to believe in certain, from my point of view, fantastical things, it, seems to me like a lot of people find ways to maneuver around the evidence in order to keep their faith oh, because sure. they're emotionally sure, attached. Yeah. No, I agree with that hundred percent. I agree that people do that. Um, I, I mean, I would want to present this scenario though. Let's let's, and you can help me make this scenario, make a game of it. We can create the most biased Christian ever, which is, uh, someone who was, uh, you know, born in the church. They were dunked at an early age. Um, they, they were been taught, six-day creationism from literal interpretation of Genesis. Uh, Non-believers are going to burn in hell forever. You mean the most fundamentalist beliefs that you can possibly imagine. They've never studied apologetics. They have no... They're they're a a presuppositionalist. Um, uh, What else might we add? Um... I don't know, just a general strict adherence to the Bible. Yeah, like they're just the most biased person ever. Uh, you and I would agree that that's poor methodology, um, but we'd still have to argue against them on the basis of evidence and reason, uh, because just saying, uh, you know, you're biased, you're probably wrong. Uh, clearly, they're biased, but it's obviously still possible that they're correct. I mean, it is possible, and uh, I I never mean to suggest that just because somebody is biased or they have a bias that means that they're wrong. Okay. What my point was and still is, is that the, the, the person with the biased position potentially has a reason to, uh, illogically hold that position. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. So, um, the point in pointing out like the bias is that, because that person is biased because of their faith, that is not like a con- like like just because they hold a position or they think a certain thing, or or they argue some kind of bad evidence, um, it just doesn't it, it it's not convincing to me. So like like for instance, when, when I hear an apologist start to talk about uh, history of Jesus, if they say something that I haven't heard before. I'm immediately skeptical of what they say. Okay. Yeah. And and it, it's it, and, and I think that, that that's a that's a healthy kind of skepticism. Uh, I would agree. Because, yeah. 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 So that's that that's that's all that I'm trying to to okay. say here yeah, is sure. that is that like the uh, apologists and even New Testament scholars 
they definitely have a very strong bias because of their faith-based positions. Not, not all New Testament scholars are you know, Christian, of course, but I mean, I would say that most New Testament scholars are indeed Christian, which kind of seems like if someone's going to say, well, you know, most New Testament scholars agree Jesus existed. It's like, uh, but did he really, though? Like, I mean, what's the actual evidence behind it? And uh, not like a knock against you or anything, but I mean, a lot of people out there just say, well, you know, mainstream scholarship disagrees with you. And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm already contending with like I'm already disagreeing with mainstream scholarship. Yeah, I get that I'm doing that. I get that it's on me to prove mainstream scholarship wrong. Sure. Right. I get that. Well, I, I just but to be you, honest, I actually admire it. Uh, this is why I admire people who – but then again, so this this is actually interesting because you kind of get a double-edged sword. You're, you're holding to a position that's obviously not mainstream scholarship um, and, and, and willing to, to debate it. And when you're presented with reasons why mainstream scholarship believes what they believe, uh, you uh, refute it um, and things like that. And I actually see a parallel here between other – so, I mean, all you have to do is, is say what other positions are like that. And uh, another position that you find like that is, this, is the, uh, you know, creationist, non-evolution interpretation of science, science and things like that. It's like they're holding to a position that's clearly not mainstream scholarship, and they're holding to it very strongly. And when presented with the – and there's probably obvious uh, – uh, breaks in the analogy. I'm just highlighting the analogy, um, and 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 they're holding to it in the face of arguments made by the mainstream side. Um, and so I think there's something admirable about that. I think, hey, I, you're you're convinced, and the fact that the overwhelming majority or the majority, we'll just say the majority of scholars uh, disagree with you, and you're continuing to hold to it. I think there's obviously something admirable in that. It's almost like a uh, you know, it's almost like remember the Alamo. You're just going to take your stand, and uh, because you, until until you're convinced otherwise, I'm not saying you're taking a religious stand on Jesus' mythicism, uh, and that would be a, a a point where the analogy breaks down. Um, but I'm just saying there is something admirable about that, both in you and in for me. I'm just saying there's something admirable about that with the creationists, um, and yet there's that double-edged sword of bias that I think comes into on um, both of those accounts. Well. Well, see, <laughs> a little bit of advice, at least for me, don't ever compare mythicism to creationism. I get that it's the same in that we're both challenging the consensus, but there's a very, very big difference here. For sure. one thing, minimal mythicism, which is the position that I hold, is scholarly based. Uh, you know, has the, has a growing number of scholars in the field that are that that are taking a look at the evidence and not coming out uh, convinced that he existed. Um, you know, uh, you got Raphael Lataster; he's agnostic about it. You've you've got several other people that are are um, uh, that are learned that that have the appropriate degrees and appropriate experience in the field that you know that that aren't convinced by you know that Jesus actually existed. Now, where Jesus mythicism and creationism really differ is that his historiography is is very subjective. If you read you you can read any number of of New Testament scholars, they'll have different opinions 
on these different things and it's all subjective opinions and what you have to do is you got to look at the evidence and see which side has the has more support with actual evidence versus like made up evidence like q where this differs from creationism creationism deals with hard science this is this is these are things that we can actually test and prove to be either correct or incorrect with history it's it's soft you don't have verified proof of of you know these things you what you do is you find the most likely answer and that's inherently subjective it's inherently based on probability what do you think is the most probable answer and so the difference here is is very stark it's like night and day because creationism denies hard science denies uh, you know, uh, all the evidence that we have, you know, hard evidence that directly points to like an old earth uh, that points to the Big Bang and all this. They, they deny all of that in favor of a, a book that's, you know, inherently faith based that was written by people that didn't understand um, uh, astronomy or cosmology or, or any, any kind of advanced science. And they're saying that that is more accurate than the hard science that we can use now that that we can test reality with, whereas historiography is not is is not that way at all. Yeah, no, I'm I'm perfectly happy to relent that point. I was uh, not really trying to make a substantive point about that. Just trying to uh, uh, talk about going against the uh, going against the grain or going against the mainstream scholarship or however you want to word that. Uh, and oh. perhaps I picked the 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 wrong analogy there. Uh, it was just uh, something that had been discussed throughout the conversation. Is why it was on my mind. Um, did you have something else? Sorry. No, I mean, I was gonna say, um, like the the con, like I I I didn't take offense from it or anything. No, like I, that yeah, I didn't gather you. that. Yeah. Okay, uh, but I mean, like you could make the the exact same analogy between uh, somebody who who thinks that the gospels, which I'm not sure if you think this, but somebody that thinks the gospels were written right around the same time that Paul was writing, that they were written by eyewitnesses, that position is is comparable to creationism in the same way that like mythicism is comparable to creationism. So, I mean, it, it, it's really not a helpful thing to like trying to compare it i get i get the i get the fact that you were trying to say that it's admirable to sort of take on the consensus but um i i, I guess i just do think that creationism is probably the wrong way a, a good analogy i would say would be like um the the scholarship and the scholars that were uh, contending that moses and noah and how we know the israelites became a nation that entire discussion is very similar to the is uh, like the Jesus mythicism, um, because in that position, like I don't think that Moses was a historical par- person or Abraham or any of them, and that is the mainstream consensus position. But a lot of apologists out there and um, 
even some scholars take the position that it was a you know that they were actually real people yeah. and so uh I, I feel like that's a better comparison yeah it's, than, a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a flip-flop uh, on the one side it's uh people arguing this person did not exist and on the other side it's people arguing no these people did exist so that's an interesting an- uh, analogy there uh well again uh thanks so much for joining me john and to the audience again if you want to watch the five more minute bonus segment with uh godless engineer be sure to follow the patreon link in the description below and become a supporter of the show john thanks so much for joining me sir i really appreciate it oh thank you i I had a great time i mean you know conversations like this pass by really quick and i get rambly too so i understand 